Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Christina Matina, editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we're talking with the authors of a commentary article published in our November issue. The article, Medical Home Visit Programs During COVID-19 State of Emergency, describes the experience of reimagining how a home health program can deliver care amid the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic. The authors from Northwell Staten Island University Hospital in Staten Island, New York, are Dr. Donna Seminara, Dr. Anita Serzin, Dr. John R. Mays, and Dr. Zeal Shah. Welcome. Can you take us through what inspired you to write this commentary and the main points you make in it? Yes, of course. So the home visit program, it's one of the many ambulatory programs that are part of the Staten Island Division of Geriatrics. So on average, we usually take care of between 320 to 350 patients and their family at any given time. Uh, We have very involved office staff that manage the day-to-day needs of the patients. And in general, in the past, we've had to handle crisis situations like um, Hurricane Irene and Superstorm Sandy. So as you can imagine, in the light of the pandemic, uh, our staff was immediately aware of the challenges that that were facing the members of the program, given the fact that we had experienced in other crises in the past. So although that we are a rather large home visit program, we know that there are smaller ones in uh, physician offices, right? And we figured that by sharing our experiences, it would be really helpful to other similar programs in the area as well. So that's what inspired us to write this and hopefully it will be useful to other people. Can you take us through some of the main takeaways from the commentary? Hi, uh, this is uh, Dr. Simonera speaking. I'm the medical director of the Home Visit Program, and as such, I get a lot of daily feedback from our office staff in terms of what the challenges are facing our patients. Usually, we're dealing with direct medical issues. As soon as the pandemic hit, however, we were really hit with two major issues. One was the tremendous isolation of our patients. This isolation came from many different fronts. For instance, family members themselves were afraid to go out. You have to remember that some of our patients, uh, their average ages are well into the 90s. So their children are people who are in their 60s and 70s who had a lot of COVID fear themselves. And therefore they were afraid to, to go out and sometimes interact with their own family members. So there was familial isolation, the isolation of their own internal support system. Furthermore, a lot of the vendors who usually would go to the home and sort of share uh, global responsibility for the patients with us were no longer there. For instance, the community health agencies like visiting nurse services and agencies were no longer providing those services. Primarily, this was because of shortages of PPE and without adequate PPE, those vendors did not feel comfortable going in. And the mechanism by which there is funding for home physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy is through orders coordinated by a community health agency. 
So when those nurses weren't going in and supplementing those orders, then we didn't have all of those therapy services there. And those therapy services play a role not only in providing therapy, but they also are an important source of support for the home health aides and the caregivers who live with the patients at home. So that was another source of isolation, not having those outside vendors. Testing also became a real challenge. Uh, we did not have the phlebotomists from our local hospital-based labs and our local commercial labs who were available to go out into the home. Their own phlebotomy to, uh, needs were so required by the hospitals and by other um, agencies and by other commercial sites that it was not feasible for them to provide this service. So we were not able to do diagnostic testing in the home. And the reassurance of people who know the patients very well, again, were not going into the home. We did not have the vendors for radiology services. And so those people weren't going into the home. So essentially, we had people who were very isolated, not too savvy on how to access other forms of care. Um, and they were just home alone, left with hearing horrors about what was happening out in the community. So their fear factor was very, very high. So aside from being isolated, they were very fearful. And that really led to some very poor judgment calls on the part of our patients and their family members. And this was very heartbreaking. And in the article, we had pointed out several examples of families making poor decisions because they were afraid of sending a loved one to an emergency room where they could not be accompanied by a family member or a known aide. And then if the patient were to be admitted in the hospital, there was no visitation allowed in the hospital. And that was another source of significant fear. This really led to um, a lot of people converting the status of their care to hospice uh, because they did not want to pursue medical integration for acute illnesses uh, such as evolving strokes and bleeds. And they opted instead for very conservative medical management. Uh, this put a lot of strain, to be frank, with, um, on our staff. We worked hard to continue all of the services that we normally do. We provide a tremendous amount of emotional support for our patients through um, our um, office staff and then our PA, our nurse practitioners, our physicians. Um, we were all pulled in many different directions as well, and we really tried to uh, continue to provide medical counseling and medical care by utilizing our telehealth services, which we had implemented, thankfully, before the pandemic started. So maybe Anita could talk a little bit about that. As Dana already mentioned, uh, Dr. Seminera already mentioned, the pandemic has dis disrupted um, healthcare in many ways, has changed healthcare, but it really didn't change the obligations we had to provide care to our patients. Um, and we realized early on that by maximizing and optimizing care outside of the hospital walls um, and preventing hospitalization, unnecessary hospitalization, preventing unnecessary emergency care visits can potentially lead to uh, reduced burden on hospital operations during the height of the COVID pandemic. Telehealth uh, has given us a tool to do so. And telehealth um, is an umbrella term um, that denotes uh, any uh, remote, uh, remotely delivered 
healthcare uh, using telehealth communication technology. Um, we have incorporated uh, telemedicine early on. About a year ago, we have received funding uh, from uh, Samuel Fenfax Foundation, and we were able to uh, incorporate uh, telemedicine in care of uh, our patient. We utilize physician assistants and nurse practitioners as a facilitators of uh, telemedicine at the time. Uh, and our goal was to provide uh, geriatrician oversight uh, for the care for all our patients. And as you know, geriatricians are scarce. Uh, so we, what telemedicine gave us the platform uh, to reach our patients and every single one of them. So once the pandemic started, we very early on were able to enhance our services and expand our services. Very quickly, uh, we increased our numbers. During the height of the pandemic, our care was uh, focused on providing telemedicine to the most needed patients. About 60% of total visit volume was delivered uh, virtually. Uh, altogether, 80% of all our visits um, were telemedicine during that time. Right now, obviously, um, it's much less. It's probably somewhere between 10 to 20%. Uh, obviously, um, you know, most of our staff was uh, deployed to care for patients in the hospital. Uh, so we have um, limitations on the staff, uh, limitations of technology. Um, and at the same time, we have third year medical students who were essentially disengaged from care because of the safety reasons. So what we have done is we have engaged uh, third year medical students who had previous training um, uh, with, uh, in clinical setting. Uh, and we have asked them to uh, provide telephone, uh, telephone calls to all our patients, as many as they can reach. Um, and that would uh, include uh, not only screening and triage um, for, for COVID-19, uh, but also screening for all um, needs, other needs uh, other than, than uh, COVID or disease re related, the social issues, for example, the depression, providing emotional support. So our students actually uh, made about close to 400 phone calls to, to our patients and uncovered tremendous need. I'm talking about even a food supply shortages, even mental and physical abuse. Um, so um, that, again, opened up another uh, ways um, to, to deliver care uh, and, and communication for, for our patients who we no normally we would not know ab about those issues if we didn't actually spend the time um, discussing this over the, over the phone. And obviously policies and regulations, federal and state regulations, allowed for it. We would not be able to provide the service um, such as this, if not a federal and state um, telemedicine uh, policies that were relaxed in response to uh, this public health emergency. Um, There's no the, doubt the geographical, that, that was very helpful. Absolutely. The geographical um, restrictions um, that were imposed before that would allow to provide care uh, via telemedicine only for the patients in rural setting and in a certain type of originating site were lifted temporarily. Uh, and therefore, we were able to reach the patients 
who had very limited access to care or none, and they were in the urban setting. Um, sure. The so Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services really expanded the policy for what they would accept also as telehealth. So there was reimbursement available for the first time for phone conversations um, and also the use of previously restricted um, forms of communication, uh, such as using uh, FaceTime, Skype, um, using iPhone imaging also was uh, very helpful in getting some other programs, I think, to be able to launch some immediate services that provided emotional support to patients. Um, furthermore, I think that the impact that we saw will certainly help to convince the federal government to continue significant uh, financial support of telehealth services. So unfortunately, this pandemic really brought together uh, the perfect storm of a regulatory support for a service that heretofore had not been recognized as uh, being so essential in terms of being able to provide primary care services for people who might geographically be very close to centers of excellence, but might as well have been thousands of miles away because they could never leave their own front door. Our homebound patients include people with dementia, with behavioral issues that really limit their ability and access to leave. We have younger patients who are suffering from such severe morbid obesity that they are not able to be ambulatory and they are essentially home and sometimes bed bound. Um, we also have patients with advanced end stage COPD and congestive heart failure for whom uh, traveling to a local clinic is just not feasible. Uh, so really for being able to provide this service uh, remotely will hopefully in the future even bring the subspecialists into the home and we've been working on projects to help get that off the ground as well. Um, I think that um, another thing that's been uh, financially very um, helpful is the recognition by private foundations that uh, support of this type of programming is so um, essential and that by having certain uh, practices such as ours demonstrate the validity of the use of telehealth in this location may actually help support CMS in expanding the programs. Another thing that was very helpful that uh, the federal government did is that they suspended the three-day rule, the three-day rule so that if we had a patient who really needed to get quickly into restorative rehabilitation for their own physical safety as they had decreased function at home, we would be able to really accelerate that process to get a COVID negative patient into a skilled nursing facility for restorative rehabilitation during a time where they normally would have to have spent some extensive time in an emergency room, thus exposing them to COVID. And we were able to bypass that as well. So there were some regulatory issues that were very helpful. And hopefully again, um, as we continue to move through the pandemic and as we hopefully get this in the rearview mirror, We'll be able to see that there are opportunities for um, some renegotiation of former rules and regulations so that we can fast track the needs of the homebound individual patient. That brings me to a similar question. How have these challenges and your program's response to them kind of evolved and changed over the course of the pandemic? Well, one of the things that we were able to do um, through our local um, incident command for COVID, which brought together our local elected officials with physician leadership in the community, was that we were able to solve some of the problems that our partners were experiencing. 
for instance, by seeing that there was a logger jam in not getting visiting nurse services into the home, we were able to go to our local politicians. The politicians were able to access PPE for services like VNS and VNA, um, and therefore get people back into the home to provide service. So we we were really a very essential gauge and monitor of where things were going wrong and really tried to work through our local politicians to, to solve problems. Now, going forward, we've had a little bit of a pause over the summer in the intensity of COVID-19's penetrance in our community. We've been very blessed in that New York, by taking very strict actions um, had gone through a relatively calm period where unfortunately we recognized that other areas of the country had been very uh, significantly and badly affected by the pandemic. But we used that time to continue our work, to look at what was working and to feed information to um, those areas where perhaps better organization would um, help to prepare for a second wave. Because of the use of the medical students that Dr. Sarazen had mentioned before, we now have more patients enrolled in our telehealth services, engaged in it with some equipment at home to monitor themselves. So we're better prepared this time around. Our patients and the caregivers are also better trained in the use of telehealth. When you start to use telehealth services, especially in geriatric care where your patients and sometimes their primary advocates are not very tech savvy, that's a significant barrier. And we've worked hard with our staff to overcome those barriers over the course of the months from June, July, August, September. And hopefully now, as we're starting to see some local upticks, things will improve. Our challenges are definitely gonna be in testing. We still cannot do nasal swab PCR testing in the home. And uh, we do have better lab support, although it's less predictable than it had been before the pandemic. So we might be able to do antibody testing. It's possible that point of care antigen testing will become so widely available that we can have such tests delivered to the homes of our patients so they can be ready with it. Um, I will point out that there is, I've seen some insurance company plans where they are sending to their senior patients Uh, point-of-care tests, along with treatment for influenza with a course of Tamiflu um, and a pulse oximeter so that patients have some equipment at home with which to contact their doctors. And we're looking at similar potential programs for our own home visit program. So you have to learn from what's happened in the past to position yourself. And we've really taken the time to work on our integration of telehealth, and getting equipment to our patients so that we can provide the best care as the second wave hits. As you mentioned before, there were a number of state and federal regulations that have helped you deliver care. Are there any further actions you'd like to see there? I'm sure that Dr. Sarazen will be able to speak to even more uh, support that's needed for telehealth services. Our biggest concern is to really get the lobbying moving forward to support the expansion that had been so great during the first wave of COVID-19. We are represented by our um, local and state medical society, uh, the Medical Society of the State of New York, of the County of Richmond, and also the American College of Physicians, the New York chapter. And we have been advocating through those sources to get national to really give great support for continuing telehealth. I am very, very hopeful 
that as things had opened up, they will continue to be supported by CMS. But there's no doubt, there's a lot of lobbying that has to be done to move that forward. Uh, we have a fairly progressive governor in Governor Cuomo in New York State. He has really ruled by a lot of executive orders, some of which have um, adversely affected sometimes access. And when that has occurred, we have you know, gone back through our local political leadership to point out how making a decision one way can adversely impact on another. Um, we also are preparing to have a really um, universal approach should our patients become ill with COVID, you know, how will we treat them? Certain things are only available in the hospital, such as rendesivir intravenously, but we could use dexamethasone as a, a steroid treatment. We can use systemic anticoagulants for patients who are at risk for thrombotic disease in the home. So we're really keeping on top of everything. Dr. Sarazin has been sort of our point person to what's happening in the hospitals um, as she has been you know, pulled to hospital care. Um, and uh, we're really hoping to integrate with our local hospital institutions um, a methodology if a patient would benefit from in-hospital care that we can get them into the hospitals quickly. So I think the, the silver lining in the cloud of COVID has really been the alignment, uh, as Donna had said, about uh, you know, policy, uh, economic reimbursement, and technology all aligning at the same time so we were able to deliver care. Um, and in six months, uh, what we couldn't do in the last decade, we were able to do in six months. I think to answer your question about what we'd like to see from a regulatory point of view change would be around HIPAA and allowing patients to use technologies that they're comfortable with in terms of interacting with their doctor. So for example, many patients are used to FaceTime. FaceTime on a technicality, although it's encrypted correctly, um, you need a BA agreement with Apple. Well, Apple's not really interested in us in signing a BA agreement, but patients are very comfortable with that as a way to interact with their doctors. So um, relaxation of HIPAA in terms of telehealth will really become important as we try to move forward and use these methodologies for patients, as Donna had identified, you know, although they're not in an area that's underserved because of their disability, even though it may be a mile, for them with their disability, it could be a, a thousand miles. You know, these are all opportunities to, to really help patients who can't get to the doctor regularly and to reduce overall costs by being able to monitor people uh, more closely than if they had to come to the office all the time. And we're talking about silver lining. <laughs> um, so, so again, we are all looking for silver lining in, in COVID. And I think expansion of telemedicine, um, as John pointed it out, uh, it truly is. Um, and especially among geriatric patients. And I think we need to see the continuation of that trend. Uh, so what we need, uh, we need investments and support uh, in building the technology uh, that is more user-friendly. Um, so really focus on uh, geriatric uh, patients' needs. Um, so collaboration uh, with health technology industry uh, and medical uh, community is the key here. Um, we need to find uh, the tools and the platforms uh, that are easy to use. And John uh, pointed it out that FaceTime 
um, is fairly easy for, for most of our patients. However, some of our patients may not have dexterity to use it. So voice-activated platforms are necessary to be uh, developed uh, and incorporated in the care. And again, reimbursement um, for, for those type of services um, is needed. Uh, so I think uh, what's amazing is that we will see the expansion of care outside of the hospital. Uh, Dana mentioned uh, treating acute conditions outside of the hospital, uh, treating uh, COVID um, uh, at home, um, having remote patient monitoring will allow us to do so. Um, and having a communication uh, through uh, virtual technology uh, will allow us to uh, have a better uh, communication with the patient, supervision and coordination of care outside of the hospital setting. So it's truly has changed the way uh, healthcare is delivered or will be delivered. Yeah, and, and to add to Anita's point about voice activation, there's no reason except for uh, regulatory hurdles why something like Alexa, hello, you know, Amazon, hello, couldn't be used yeah. to try to provide that service where the voice commands of the patient who may, who hasn't, especially in geriatrics, who hasn't grown up in the technological environment we have today, um, becomes a lot, a lot easier. And then they're, enable, they're able to access care in a way that's uh, more independent and keeps them more independent than they have in the past. So we're hopeful that there'll be changes made in the laws so that uh, the laws catch up to the technology that's available for uh, patients today so we can deliver care uh, more routinely and more consistently than the episodic care we deliver today. And I have to say it is a very rewarding experience both uh, for a patient and for a provider. Uh, it is amazing to see um, 78 year old able, uh, a person able to download the app, use the smartphone and communicate with the patient. Uh, we are able to provide uh, support uh, on a more frequent basis to the patients. We, in our program, we have a 70 something year old son taking care of a 90 something year old mother who's even more debil debilitated than he is. And here we are on the other side of the smartphone um, supporting, uh, supporting them, uh, assessing their needs uh, and truly being for them um, when, when they need us the most. So the access here is the key, the ease of access um, for, for both, on both sides, provider and the patient. That's the end of my questions. Is there anything else you all wanted to add? I would just make one comment also that the uh, economic implications of utilizing telehealth in this particular arena for home visits also has tremendous benefit in indirect ways because by providing the support to the example that Anita just mentioned with the 75-year-old caring for the 95-year-old, and when that son is frightened for his mother, if we can keep both of them home rather than going to the emergency room, of course, in a safe manner, we're really saving the system um, a lot of uh, stress um, in overcrowded emergency rooms and um, financial cost that really can be avoided. So this is a potential area where I'm hoping we can move forward and demonstrate that home visit care for these patients who are homebound 
um, using remote access technologies with the right regulatory support can be a financial win-win for patients and for payers, including the federal government. And it really gives us as the physicians and our whole care team a great opportunity to be able to provide optimal care for patients where they need it and when they need it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. For more about this issue, visit HAMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at HAMC.com or follow us on Twitter at HAMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.